Here's my fancy powder on the telephone. Oh, yeah. Guess what we're doing today? People. Guess what we're doing? I'm so excited. It's a queen deep dive day. It's been almost a week again. I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm so sorry. A lot of stuff going on. (laughs) But, yeah. If you remember, we concluded Queen's fabulous 1975 album, The Amazing, Miraculous, A Night at the Opera, that kept the guys going. It's been said by the boys themselves, particularly Brian May, that if opera had not done what it did, specifically because of the massive success, of course, of Bo Rap, the guys might have been swept under the ocean somewhere. They would have released four albums and that would have been it. They would have been done. But thankfully, that is not at all what happened. Because here we are. The guys' success went through the roof, charting all over the world. These guys did amazing things on a night at the opera. And now we're kicking off one of my favorite albums from the boys. I'm just... Okay, I'm going to try to contain my enthusiasm. (laughs) And I'm going to save my thoughts and love for this until the very end. I want to get through the facts. I want to get through the interesting stuff behind the creation of this album, this masterpiece. Album number five, released on December 10th. 1976, and it was recorded from July through November. This was one of the longest recording sessions the guys had for an album. They really took their time to make this something special. And I think it shows. This charted, it was number one in the UK, in Japan, and the Netherlands. It was number five in the US. Not so bad, not so bad. The guys continued to see their fan base grow. The enthusiasm expanded. Their performances were more and more loved. And because of this, they focused so much on their live presentation. Queen, if nothing else, were all about playing live. I think that's where they thrived the most. I think that's where they're most loved. I am really sad I can't get into a time machine and experience performances like not just, of course, Live Aid in 85, but Live at the Rainbow in 74. And their first Madison Square Garden performance. I I would love to go back and experience those moments or the very first performance they ever did as a band, as Queen. That is the kind of stuff that little fangirling me would die to see. So much to say about this album, A Day at the Races. So much. Where do we even start? Well, let's start with the album itself. Before we go into any facts, before we go into any comments from the guys, I want to talk about this album as a whole to give context, but to also summarize why it is this amazing masterpiece. Lush, elaborate, gorgeous, glamorous, extravagant, fun. A Day at the Races piggybacks on the creative motivation of its predecessor, of course, A Night at the Opera, though its sound is tighter, cleaner, punchy, dynamic, and has moments of harder aggression. 
10 tracks, less than 45 minutes of runtime. So it's shorter than previous Queen albums, but it packs plenty of attitude and confidence anyway. It's very cohesive in its musical vibe. Similar to Queen 2 and the obvious enthusiasm of the boys when they finally had the means to create a more expansive album in better quality, on races, the guys ride the wave of excitement from opera's success, happy with that sound and going all in shamelessly, indulging in these layers of guitar orchestrations, gospel-tinged vocals, heavy-duty percussion. Everything sounds and feels amplified a quality that no doubt stems from the band's self-production of the album. This is a key point. I'm going to talk about it more. Silliness and playfulness are very present, but they're never overwhelming. And there are some terribly serious, reflective, darker moments that brilliantly, surprisingly contrast the brightness. It's like Queen finally feels comfortable. They know their audience loves them. And they give away a little bit more of their extreme, sexy, soft, and silly notions. This album is bold. It's colorful. It's hard rock, but it's intricate, laced with bright linings, pop inflections, soulful inspiration. Freddie goes full-on, playful, and longing lover in more than one track. And both his piano and vocals have never been more gorgeous. Brian ventures into deeply dark, slightly perverse, and commanding territory with his compositions, further experimenting with guitar layers and effects, still holding to Queen's no synthesizers commitment. Roger noticeably abandons his penchant for harder rock and dives into, in my opinion, a beautifully refreshing, poignant sentiment in his sole contribution to the album. And thanks to the album's clean production, his drums have never sounded clearer or louder. And John displays his affection for melodic, catchy soul and pop in his composition, all while providing such a perfect backbone of weight and elegance. He even gets a bass solo or two, and they're quite melodic. If A Night at the Opera catapulted Queen to superstardom, A Day at the Races secured their place in the musical firmament, at least as far as the fans were concerned. Their concerts continued selling out, record sales remained high, and all around the world, the masses had latched onto Queen's expression of outrageous and genius musical experimentation. Let's dive into comments from the boys. I love finding comments from the guys. I go out of my way to find interviews, quotes, wherever I can. As long as I can back them up with a reputable source, I'm going to include them here. And I came across this fantastic interview that Freddie did with Kenny Everett. You remember Kenny? He's that brilliant guy, DJ, with his own show that played Bo Rap, was it 14 or 15 times in a weekend? And catapulted the guys to fame with it, essentially, almost single-handedly. Freddie talked to Kenny about his enthusiastic waltz number specifically on this album and said, quote, you just have to work at it. After a while, you fall into a pattern. I feel I'm getting better every year. I've learned a lot from our past albums. You use what you've done in the past and work out different things, unquote. Freddie talks about pushing the limit and increasing the faders 
i.e. the volume, and their poor engineer, Mike Stone, having this massive challenge of balancing the guy's need for loudness with polished, playable sound. This kind of makes me laugh because if you know anything about music mixing nowadays, there's something called the loudness wars. And what that means is these songs on the radio now are compressed to oblivion and they're all really, really loud. When you listen to a lot of the mainstream top 40 artists these days and you compare it against artists who are a little bit more obscure, not as well-known, the indie artists who are making music in a different way, there's a lot of dynamics that shifts between those kinds of artists. As I said, a lot of these top 40 artists, the ones that are mainstream, they're getting so produced and compressed. Everything is so loud. The dynamics are gone. When you listen to music like this from the 70s, or like I said, other artists that are more indie, they take, I think, greater care in the composition in a way that amplifies the dynamics. You get those soft, reflective moments, and then suddenly the crescendo comes in, and it's so impactful. Whatever happened to that? Everything is so compressed. But the guys, in their own way, were about the loudness at the time. They wanted to be loud and big and boomy and dominating. And I can imagine what their engineer, Mike Stone, went through to achieve the sound they wanted and retain the integrity of the sound all at the same time. Now, Freddie, in that same interview, said a fantastic comment about John in general. He said, quote, to lots of people, John seems quiet. Don't underestimate him. He's got a fiery streak underneath all that, unquote. What a lovable thing to say about your bandmates. The guys were super supportive of each other in every respect. And this just shows how wonderfully they looked out for each other and talked each other up. And they're still doing it today. I love it. He also talked about, Freddie did, how shy the band is in general, say what? (laughs) And his piano lessons at a young age that he eventually quit. So he couldn't sight read and he played by ear from then on. And Freddie comments on the music press in the UK as well. He said, quote, I don't take much notice of the musical trades. They can say what they like. Not constructive at all, actually. The American press, I find they do their homework. You can tell because they ask you very penetrating questions, which I don't mind, unquote. I want to go back to a few things here. I want to talk about Freddie's comment about the guys being shy. Now, he primarily alludes to himself, talks about how he likes to focus on the music and how there's a lot of things he likes to keep private. But he does say that they're all kind of a little bit like that. They don't like to give too much of themselves away. Now here, as as artists on this album, they're giving so much away creatively, and it's wonderful. But when it comes to the personal side, the human side of things, they were very protective of that. And I want to talk too about Freddie's comments about the press. This, I think, is the first time I've ever read any kind of a reference to UK music press versus the American press. I've never heard or read any of the guys say that kind of statement from one to the other and how they felt about each of them. So obviously, in Freddie's mind, the UK press, and he goes on to make comments like, you know, they'd they'd ask you silly questions without a lot of context, like, you know, oh, why did you do this? Or what's going on with your life here? You know, it didn't really have much to do with the music, but Freddie goes on to say, yes, those American publications, the journalists were much more careful about researching 
Queen and Freddie and understanding what they were about. And they asked them interesting questions about the structure of the songs and how they went about making them. And so stuff that's actually meaningful and interesting to the listener. It's not just a means to create controversy. There's actually something with context. There's actually something there that has some weight and some value. And I loved finding that little snippet. It was great to to hear that in that interview. Now, Brian has said that opera and races are very much twin albums. We'll talk about this some more. With interviewer Matt Pinfield of VH1, who, by the way, did liner notes for the Crown Jewels box set. Brian elaborated about the twin albums, saying, quote, we were pursuing a certain course throughout those albums. They got incredibly complex, but also hopefully accessible. Because we'd learned a few things, it was like combining Sheer Heart Attack with Queen 2. He brings up a really interesting point. I've thought about this, how a day at the races and a night at the opera, but I really get this on this album with races. I feel very much like we have this variation and diversity of sound with Sheer Heart Attack, which yes, was also on opera. But Queen 2 had this incredible overproduction, very indulgent quality about it with all the orchestrations and the arrangements. And I feel like here, we're getting more of that. This album is so beautiful. I've said it before. This is their prettiest album. It's melodic. It's catchy. It's beautiful. The melodies here, the arrangements are heartwarming and soothing and uplifting. There's so much that's positive here. Now, when it comes to critics and fans sentiment, we talked a little bit about the press here. So we're going to dive into that a little bit more right now. And you may not be happy with some of this. I know I'm not, but to each their own. And some of it is not unexpected. The music press, notably Rolling Stone and Circus, was largely, not surprisingly, harsh on this album. And they typically criticize the style that obviously began with its predecessor. It's worth noting the attack from Rolling Stone's Dave Marsh, particularly, who wrote, quote, Blessed with Freddie Mercury's passable pop voice and guitarist Brian May, who manages to fragment and reassemble the guitar styles of Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, and Eric Clapton in interesting, if pedestrian, ways, Queen will probably top the charts until one or the other of its leaders grows restless and spins off another version. I have a bone to pick with that on so many levels because here's here's the thing. First of all, they're calling the work mediocre, copycat, all hype. This was something that Queen was often referred to as. They were all hype, supposedly. The other biggest bone I have to pick is the fact that there's no mention of John or Roger. And they're alluding to the fact that Brian and Freddie are the leaders of the band. That's almost worse than calling Freddie the sole leader, which happened a lot. Freddie would always correct people. No, I'm the lead singer. I'm not the leader of the band. No. All of the guys talked about this a lot because they played such an important role, all four of them. But the fact that Rolling Stone is like, oh, one or both of the band's leaders, excuse me, what? Yeah, I know this review is long since passed. It's very old at this point, but I'm still furious about it because Queen is four men who were and are incredibly talented. 
and did this thing together. And I am offended (laughs) that anyone would write something like that because you know at this point, Rolling Stone has to be aware of the structure of the band. I mean, I, I, I just, I can't imagine that they're not. It, it, it would really surprise me if this particular reviewer, Dave Marsh, didn't know the story behind the band. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he didn't, and that was the perception at the time. But even if it was, wouldn't you do your homework? Freddie talked about American press being a lot better about, about that. What? Okay. Anyway, moving on. EMI had the highest advance orders ever for an album with this. But despite that anticipation, the press weren't convinced. They perceived Queen's formula as calculated, doubtful, and pompous. A reviewer at Sounds wrote, quote, it is too formulated, too smartass, too reliant on trickery as a substitute for inspiration, unquote. Excess began to be a themed complaint from many critics, but it wasn't always in direct response to the music itself. EMI released the first Queen EP after the massive success of the guys' races tour. And fans were ecstatic about it. But the press, quote, no stars for releasing four tracks that all their loyal fans already possess. A royal shame, unquote. That's from NME. And another gem, quote, enough to make one paint art rock sucks on a t-shirt. Destroy, unquote. That's from Sounds. At the time of the album's release, some American press, the Washington Post, Winnipeg Free Press, praised the album for its judicious blend of heavy metal rockers and classically influenced, almost operatic, torch songs, unquote, and contemporary reviews are much more positive. All music notes in a retrospective review how Queen entered a new phase where they're global conquering titans instead of underdogs on the make. So nowadays, critics recognize and more often than not celebrate this album as the sparkling companion piece to A Night at the Opera, even if they prefer the latter. Races was voted the 67th greatest album of all time in a national 2006 BBC pool. In a worldwide Guinness and NME pool featuring the greatest 100 albums of all time, A Day at the Races was voted number 87. And fans are pretty unified in their opinion that this is a marvelous collection of songs where the guys sound comfortable, very enthusiastic with the style of performance and presentation, and they let go a bit after the stress they must have been feeling during opera's creation, not to mention the unrelenting battles with their former management. People praise Freddie's piano playing, the unabashed, shameless indulgence of elaborate compositions like Good Old Fashioned Lover Boy and Teo Toriate. But many a fan still cites opera as their favorite of these two sister albums. Into the facts, the fun facts. I love digging into this stuff, you guys. This album was recorded at three studios as opposed to the previous album's six. And that's a correction, you guys. I said seven when I introduced A Night at the Opera. I said seven. I got that, quote, 
from the book, White Queen, I'm sorry, not White Queen, Queen As It Began. I got that number of studios right out of that book. And I got to say, I'm surprised because I think that might actually be wrong unless there is a studio missing somewhere because every other source I find says it was six studios and they name them. So I'm like, okay, if there was a seventh, where was it? (laughs) So I apologize. A Night at the Opera was recorded at six studios and this album was recorded at three. And it includes additional vocals by engineer Mike Stone, who I mentioned earlier, on Good Old Fashioned Lover Boy. For the first time on this album, the guys self-produced it in its entirety. Let's talk about that for a second. So I love this album. I shouldn't say that. I was going to save it till the end. This album is great. (laughs) And part of the reason for that is the incredible job the guys did producing this thing. It's really different compared to, it's just A Night at the Opera, which came right before it. And it's incredibly different to the guys' earliest albums, which especially their debut sounds very, very thin. A lot of that has to do with the way Trident's studios were, especially with the drums. Brian has talked about this. I think Roger has too. That when you hit the drums in a Trident studio, they kind of sounded like, There, there was no weight. There was no ambience. Everything was thinned out so much, you lose those dynamics. So here, the guys produced it. Roy Thomas Baker's not here. He did A Night at the Opera and albums before it. This is the first time the guys have done this themselves. And I gotta say, it's great. They understand their music so well at this point that they are able to sit down at that desk and mix it and make it sound fantastic. And you get these fabulous, rounded out, full-weighted drums here. The balance of piano, guitar, bass, everything is beautiful. The vocals sound fabulous. They're very clear. They're, they're rounded out. The frequency range here is so wonderfully balanced. I love listening to this album because of its quality and the way it sounds. I almost wish, and because I know the guys shifted with the times and, and the trends of mixing and mastering as the, the years went by, but I almost wish they'd stuck with this because it, it sounds so wonderful for that reason. I major props to all of them for the work they did on the production here because it's absolutely stunning. The album opens and closes with this clever shepherd's tone harmonium cycle. It's this never-ending perpetually rising medley that's created using a superposition of sine waves separated by octaves. Now, this is a very mathematical thing. Just look up shepherd's tone. And you'll know what I'm talking about. It's really easy to understand when you see a visual representation of what this is. But essentially, it just sounds like it's never going to end. It's this circling, rising tone. And you can do it in different ways with different intervals. But in this case, on this album, this tone bookends the whole thing. And it's this wonderful intro and outro for the entire journey that sounds rousing. It's so cool. I, I, I think I tried to use it as my ringtone for a while, but it was almost hard to hear it because it wasn't loud enough. I just, I absolutely love that they chose to do this intro and outro here. It's very genius. It's quite simple, but it's a very unique, interesting way of pulling someone into an album. 
During this album's creation, Queen performed their famous Hyde Park concert with an estimated 150 to 200,000 people in attendance. It was so big that the guys couldn't even do their encore because things were getting crazy. And the police had to shut everything down. They essentially forced Freddie to stop singing and said, we're going we're gonna to have to arrest you if you don't stop. Really sad, but ultimately a very big success for the guys. They did a mini tour of Britain to give more love to their enthusiastic and now much bigger fan base. And during these performances, they began playing 39 from A Night at the Opera at the front of the stage in a memorable acoustic arrangement. This is with all four of them downstage, standing in a line. That's when they started doing this. And this would become a very special part of their concerts for the next few years. The boys stayed with their Marx Brothers theme, of course, with the album title. And Groucho Marx wished the boys a lot of success with their album. And later, when Queen was on tour in L.A., Groucho invited them personally to his home for tea, where the guys gave him a tour jacket and an engraved gold disc, thanking him for the inspiration. And they even sang 39 a cappella for him. A compilation mix of an incomplete A Day at the Races was created on November 5th of 1976, just days before its official release. And on that mix were alternate or earlier versions of several songs, including Tie Your Mother Down and Teo Toreate. The band and press attended a pre-publicity race meeting at Kempton Park, where a special race called A Day at the Races Hurdle was run in their honor. And when that hurdle was called, the band members all had a bet, totally unaware they'd all backed the same horse, Lanzarote, which won. (laughs) Very cool. And by the time Racist was released, the boys were doing so well financially, they finally had the means to move out of their little rented flats and into comfortable homes of their own. Roger even converted the basement of his home into a recording studio, which he would go on to use for his own solo developments in the coming years. The boys toured A Day at the Races from January 13th through June 7th of 77 throughout North America and Europe. And the final two shows at the Earl's Court Exhibition Center were recorded with the band using an expensive lighting rig in the shape of a crown for the first time. This is a huge deal for their performances. They'd go on to keep using this light crown and expanding it, making it bigger, etc. This was also the tour where, as fans began singing along with the band word for word, the guys finally realized, we shouldn't be fighting this, we should be embracing it. Enter the much-loved and popular songs we'll talk about later. Actually, at least one of them on the next album. But that's the next album. You guys, I want to talk about it now. I want to talk about races and how much I love this album. So I've read a lot of comments about this album. I've I've read a lot of reviews. I've read a lot of sentiment from fans. And really, most people like A Night at the Opera more. They like it because it's it's innovative. It was pivotal in their career. It has bow rap on it. So much about A Night at the Opera is amazing. The innovation on that album is incredible. Yes. But you guys, for me, there is something about A Day at the Races that is incredible. It's so cohesive. It's so beautiful. I, I listen to it from start to finish and it just feels like this wonderful collection that was just meant to be like it is. 
Sure, there are certain things that are a little bit more predictable. They're not quite as complex. They're not quite as imaginative. They're not quite as outside the box. But I'm telling you, the appeal here is huge. When I was listening to all of the guys' stuff before I owned all their albums myself and I was streaming a lot of their work, I was listening to Races before I found it at the store. And I was like, I love this album. I have to have it. I love it. I I love how lush it is. I love the sentiment here in so many of these songs. I love that we get a little bit more vaudeville and camp Freddy. So enthusiastically so. I, I love the layers of vocals here. I love the harmonies from the boys. I love that we get this softer side from Roger in his song. I love that we get this really dark and deep and almost controversial thing from Brian. Oh, and we also get, for the first time, a song that I have read from others to be called as a very immature, kind of creepy... <laughs> creepy teenage angst attraction sexual thing, (laughs) which it's just funny, you guys, because I love Brian and I love his songs and I love the dynamics of where he goes when he writes. And this is a perfect example of a man who's, who writes these incredibly deep, soulful, very poignant things. And then he comes out with this, again, what I said is referred to by some as this very immature number that is absolute fun. Honestly, I, I, I could criticize things, but I, I, outright enjoy this album from start to finish. I love so much about it here. I feel like the guys let go here because again, they they were finally free. They had money. They had stability. They could do more of what they wanted. And I think they took this amazing success they had with opera and thought, you know what? Let's just ride it. Who cares? We love this. We're inspired. Let's keep going with this. And that's exactly what they did. They they wanted to keep doing this style. They wanted to elaborate more on it. And I'm glad we have this because there's so many beautiful moments here. So many beautiful moments. Freddie's best ballad, in my opinion, is on this album. One of John Deacon's best poppy compositions that sticks in my brain all the time is here. Yep, you and I. Such a great catchy number, that thing. My goodness, John. He has such an innate ability to capture a hook in a song incredibly well. And this song here from him is absolutely no exception. And Freddie, that man and his charm, I'm telling you, I have not been able to get good old-fashioned lover boy out of my head for days now. This stuff sticks with me. I love the songs here. I love the attitude here. I love that the guys are a little bit more carefree and we're going for it. Yes, it's more indulgent. It's more, I think, self-focused. We've talked about A Night at the Opera having a lot of heart and being a little bit more worldly. In a way, I feel like the guys got a little bit more selfish here with the content, but I don't care. Because I love the emotion. I love the expression. The instrumentations are beautiful. This is a fabulous, lovely album from a rock band. It is gorgeous. It's lush. It's rich. It's warm. If I was going to give this album a color, it's orange. And I'm not just saying that because the cover itself has a lot of warm colors in it. But just the feel of this album, you guys, I see orange. I see a sky that is all lit up in yellow and orange right as the sun is dropped. And it's not blue yet in the sky. There's just this beautiful glow everywhere. And that's how this album feels to me. 
a little bit of synthesia there going on. I, I love the color of this album and I cannot wait to get into these numbers and talk about it more. I feel like there's so much I missed, honestly. I feel like there's more I want to say. Maybe it's about the mixing of this album and the production. I, I'm just, I'm wowed that the guys were able to do this on their own. Yes, they had an engineer, but they produced this and, and it sounds so fabulous coming out of their hands that way. I, I, I love it. I love races. It is one of my favorites from the guys. Yes, I love it more than a night at the opera. I'm just going to say it. I love a day at the races. A day at the races isn't my favorite. I never have a favorite, favorite, favorite. I can't because I love Queen 2 too much. I love a, a day at the races too much. There are moments where news of the world is really high for me, and then jazz is high. You know, everything just kind of flits around depending on the day. I, I've come to love their de debut a lot more than I used to at first, too. Even though the production there is sorely lacking, what I hear is the brilliance of these guys bursting onto the scene and so enthusiastic to be having this opportunity to do what they've been working on for so many years when I listen to their debut. And then I listen to something like this, and I'm just like, wow, they've come so far. We have the diversity of Sheer Heart Attack. We have the enthusiasm of Queen 2. We have the elaborate orchestrations from A Night at the Opera, and they just amplify it tenfold here. And I love it. I don't care what the critics say. I don't care what some of the fans say, that this is a repeat, that this is an inferior effort compared to its predecessor. I think A Day at the Races is gorgeous. I think it's one of the best Queen songs, Queen songs, it's one of the best Queen albums to listen to from start to finish. And it's not just because of that shepherd tone. This thing feels like a complete work. And the guys did a phenomenal job with it. And I urge you to go check it out, go listen to it. We're going to talk more about all of the fabulous songs on A Day at the Races. You take my breath away. Tie your mother down. Yes. It's the sad eyed goodbye. Bring out the charge of the love brigade. Just you and I. So good, you guys. So good, all of these songs. Keep yourselves alive. Until next time, I will be back. I'll be back. And so much enthusiasm for where we're going with this. Just getting started, you guys.